I would ask you to turn to Psalm 47, which we read a moment ago. And this, of all of the psalms in the Psalter, is one of the most victory-laden, cheer-on-the-victory, cue-the-fanfare psalms in the whole thing, right? And so uh, you might wonder, because I'm probably in the sermon going to get really excited about the text, because the text is really exciting, and, uh, and, and, and may it be true for you also, but I also confess that this is one that I really want us to sing, and maybe you've looked at your bulletin and you're like, we're not singing it this Sunday. Yeah, that's mainly because I feel like over the last few months we've thrown a lot of new singing at you, uh, and um, so, so we are uh, giving us time to kind of, as it were, collect ourselves and, and refresh some of what we learned, but don't you worry, all in good time, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a sung arrangement of Psalm 47 to come. Because it just, it, it practically pleads to be, to be sung. And so this is, as I said, a, a victory psalm. You, you can almost imagine the armies of Israel singing this as they're coming back into the city after a blessed victory. Uh, and so it begins, verse 1, Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Right? And we're going to just hold it right there for a moment. And I want to point something out to you. Okay? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So the psalm begins the same way, in fact, the exact same way that our worship service began this morning, which was a call to worship, which is exactly what this first verse is. A call to all nations to worship the living, and in this case, the victorious God. God is to be worshipped. And there's lots of things, you probably heard them as the text was read a moment ago, Uh, Lots of things that are happening, physical, audible things are happening in the the line of the worship of God. So what do we have in the psalm? We have clapped hands, right? That's in verse 1 at the very beginning. We have shouts, right? Clap your hands, shout to God with loud songs of joy. You don't have to jump to the verse, but but later on we have uh, history, kind of a retelling of God's victories. That's verse 3. He subdued peoples under us, nations under our feet, and so on. And also with song. Uh, That's over in verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises and so on. So you have these different elements of worship that are all crammed into this very short psalm reminding us that God has called us to worship Him with a lot of different, if you will, methods of expression. Methods of doing just that. Sorry, I know what's coming in the psalm, so I'm really really pumped and that's why I'm shouty. I can bring it down a little bit, but... (laughs) for the moment. The reason why we often use psalms in our call to worship, you might have noticed that when we start our services, it doesn't have to be a psalm. It's not always a psalm, but it is often a psalm. And the reason is because the psalms very frequently do just that. They call us to worship God. They're absolutely chock full of moments where God is calling His people to worship Him. And what this teaches us is that God calls us to worship, and in giving us instructions in this and various other places, God cares about how it is to be done. Now, that's not the same thing as saying that that the exact same thing needs to happen every single Sunday with the exact same words and motions and movements and songs and so on. But anyone who would say, who would dare to say, God doesn't really care about how He is to be worshipped, is simply unfamiliar with the Scriptures. 
especially one rather alarming incident uh, involving two men, one named Nadab and one named Abihu in Leviticus 10, which we won't cover today, but that's a fun story. In many and various places in the Scriptures, God declares what sorts of things should shape how He is worshipped by His people. So our worship doesn't look precisely like ancient Israel's, of course. We don't have a tabernacle or sacrifices or an Ark of the Covenant, but it does mirror the same patterns and approach to God. In, in the worship class uh, that I taught on Wednesday nights a, a few years back, we went through and, and, and talked through kind of the various aspects of our worship service, the, the call, the confession, consecration, commissioning, uh, all having some parallel to the main, the central Old, Ta- Old Testament sacrifices. And so God has called us to worship Him with a number of different methods, you might say. And what I want you to notice is that these methods involve our bodies, as well as our, our, our mouths, as well as our hearts. Uh, and this psalm is one such example. People are called to clap their hands and to shout with loud songs. Right? So these songs are to be joyful songs to the Lord. Right? That's the idea. So it's sing, uh, uh, sing a joyful song to the Lord. Now, some of you might wonder, you know, you, that, that opening in verse 1, clap your hands. Really? In a Reformed church? <laughs> but if I did that, Pastor Brian, I might drop my brand new Psalter hymnal. <laughs> Or I also know some of you, some of you have, have come out of a, a church experience where there was a kind of abusive or manipulative emotionalism in play. And so if that's your story, you tend to be hypersensitive, not wanting to feel, <laughs> not wanting to feel feelings at any time too strongly in a worship service. Uh, because, and that's because when you did, kind of look what happened. You, you didn't just feel things, you got pulled around on, like, uh, like a dog on a leash by the feelings. And so when you come to a psalm like Psalm 47 that speaks of clapping and shouting, it all sounds a bit concerning and maybe discomforting to you. I know for some of you this is no trouble at all, but I wanted to to kind of address both sides there. One thing I want to say is that one of my ever-present goals and hopes for our gathered worship together is that we are always looking at and longing to walk after what God has said, okay? So the Bible is our standard for our worship, okay? We believe and confess that God alone gets to say how He is to be worshipped. It is not given to us to invent or imagine how He is to be worshipped, but rather to discover and revel in how He is to be worshipped. And for that, the Bible is our standard not our experiences or our preferences. We want to be a people of the Bible. So that means we want to, in a sense, grow up into all the Bible calls us to do and to be. So a lot of times what can happen is we get an idea of what we would like to grow up into, then we ransack the Bible looking for some kind of proof text so that we can, so that we can get there with a, with a sort of vague biblical justification. So I want to say beware of that. Uh, in fact, and be willing to receive correction 
about how you use the Scriptures. Because a lot of times what can happen is the way that we use a verse becomes so common and colloquial, maybe we're not even mindful of the context, okay? I don't mind telling you that uh, just a few days ago, um, John, where are you, brother? Are you back there? Oh, he's, he's in my, okay. Uh, well, I'm going to brag on John. John McLaughlin told me that he, he caught something I said that referenced a biblical text, and kind of by the way he was hearing it, he said, I, I think you might be pulling that out of context. Here's what I think actually the wider context is talking about. And he invited me to study and to consider whether or not it might be a, a misuse. I'm still studying. Um, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still thinking. I'm still chewing on it, if I'm honest. But I'm really thankful to be in a place where such things are taken seriously. So, so back to the point. We, in worship, we use our bodies, we, we use our voices, we clap our hands and so on. And, and of course, our hearts as well. Uh, one thing, man, one thing that is not really part of our services, but someday I, 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 would, I would love to see it, is, is kneeling in prayer. Kneeling in prayer is actually good for us. It's in the Bible. Singing is good for us. It's in the Bible. Raising hands is good for us, and it's in the Bible. Worship involves your body, which is why worship through a screen tends to be more observation than participation, uh, because we're an embodied people. We even use physical things to worship, right? Psalm 150 says, praise Him with the symbols, right? Check. Got it. Praise Him with the symbols, yeah? Not praise Him with the symbols of your heart. (laughs) Right? No, that's a physical object that you are using to praise the Lord. Right? So, so I think I got ahead of myself. Let's go back to the clapping of hands. Right? So clapping of hands in this context probably was an action of triumph or victory. Yeah? In the same way, yeah, in the same way that an army might shout, long live the king, or even huzzah after a, after a victory, the action of a military unit, when done together, let's try it, right? We'll all clap our hands once on three. One, two, three. All right, so imagine that, but with like many, many more hundredfold rising up in this valley and, and, and a valley and echoing off the, the stone or whatever. Like it would have sounded, I mean, honestly, comparison might be like a gunshot. This, this loud and sudden jolting sound of victory echoing throughout the valley we tend to use clapping of hands a bit differently. We tend to use it as a way to keep rhythm <laughs> when we are capable of such things, <laughs> beloved. <laughs> if you've ever heard a Presbyterian church clap to try to keep rhythm, you learn that God does not distribute His gifts in equal measure to all people. Right? <laughs> With discipline, it can, yes, yes. Uh, and so we... So, so the rest of verse 1 then, shout to God with loud songs of joy. So this, this praising is accompanied with a shout. Let's talk about that. Why do people shout, right? Sometimes it's because they want to be heard. <laughs> if you've, I mean, if you've ever gotten in an argument and, and your voice has increased in its volume, that's because you want to be heard. You get shouty. Sometimes it's because you have a deep sense that uh, like what you're about to say needs to be heard by everybody and you need to say it with all the power that you have to say it. What this is probably referencing is what I'm going to call liturgy with a volume button. Okay, The sound of a shout 
was usually a united crying out of the assembled people. Something like hallelujah or amen, right? So that's very familiar to you. This is why sometimes I have encouraged you, a few times we've done it, and a few times on Wednesday night as well, to shout amen at the end of a hymn or song, okay? And sometimes uh, when, when we get to the end of a song, you might hear me say something like, and all God's people said, or and we all said together, and I would be perfectly fine if we developed a tradition of shouting amen at the end of, of a good psalm, hymn, or spiritual song. I'd even be fine if we developed a tradition of shouting amen without any prompting. But um, in fact, since, I'm sorry, Barbara, do you, do you mind if I, if I exercise a, an idea without any, uh, so I, the, uh, what did we sing a moment ago, the Keith Green song? Uh, yeah, there's a Redeemer. Could you, could you give me just the starting chord for that? Right? And so we're gonna do, actually, uh, we'll do the chorus. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sing together. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. All right. So with, with, with clapped hands and with shouts of joy, that is the idea that we're meant to, to understand here. Let's look at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Right? So this is, again, a retelling of the victory of God, previous victories. Okay, Reciting the story of what our God has done is an essential part of our worship. This is what we do in song. Uh, We sing about what God has done because, why? Well, because in the present we tend to get doubtful about what God has said He can do or will do. So we fill our hearts and our songs with, with the stories of the God who saves, the God who rescues, the God who heals and delivers, the God who answers prayer and so on. Here in this psalm, they sing about God's victory and, and defeated enemies. Sometimes when I'm, preaching, uh, when I'm preaching on a particular text, I, I might, as part of the, the sermon prep process, listen to how other preachers have handled the same text. It's always helpful to, 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 to hear that. And uh, one sermon I, I heard, I heard some reflections in Psalm 47. It was preached in 2008. Now, just kind of hold that, put a pin in that for a minute. 2008. And the, the preacher said, We sing songs of God's victory, of the defeat of Pharaoh, of Nebuchadnezzar being laid low, of being delivered from the clutches of sin and death. And why not sing songs about our victories today? He said we can sing a new song. For God has, so he said, so that all the American churches can sing that God has thrown down the horse and rider at Yorktown, <laughs> referring to the American Revolution. He said, God has triumphed over Adolf Hitler, therefore let us sing. And one day we will sing of how God has subdued Roe v. Wade under our feet. 2008. 2008. Right? Way before, and I was thinking, man, I didn't have the faith for that in 2008. 
We make ourselves aware of the history of God's work. We sing about it because our hearts need it. In fact, every worship service here on a Sunday morning is meant to tell a story. If you look at the worship guide that's in front of you in the pew, that's the, that's the purpose of it. It tells you that our worship service every Sunday is telling a particular kind of story of our glorious God, of our fall into sin, of our resurrection to walk in newness of life and the power of the Holy Spirit who fills us for good work in the days and the week ahead. And our good God who gives us everlasting life. Look at verse 5. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So the people have shouted in verse 1. Now God goes up with a shout in verse 5. The king, and this is the, what this is picturing is, um, kind of what, what Israel understood themselves to be singing about is, God came down to deal with our enemies. And now he is going back up, right? So God came down, and now with a shout of victory, he ascends back up. And, and this is what earthly kings would do as well. After the victory, they come home to the celebration in the city, and they ascend back up to their throne to the victory shout. Now, we're going to come back to verse 5 later. So, so kind of put a hold on that for a minute. We will come back to, to talking about this, this idea God has gone up with a shout. Verse 6, another call to worship. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Verse 7, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Okay? Now notice there, in verses 6 and 7, two verses, five times, sing praises. Okay? Two verses, and the call to sing praises happens five times. So notice something. God is not afraid of repetition, but it is not a mantra-like repetition like the repetitions of, say, Eastern mysticism. That would be, here's the, rep- here's the difference. Eastern mysticism would be sing praises, 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 until you just run out of breath. And every time... What I want you to notice in verses 6 and 7, every time sing praises is uttered, it's a little different, right? So you have, I lost my spot. There it is. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises, right? So if sing praises are the two pieces of bread, there's some actual meat in the sandwich. It is not, as, uh, as John Stott said, uh, a bread sandwich. <laughs> that wouldn't work so well. Um, and so it's not repeat a word 73 times. And let me put it to you this way. Have you ever thought about a word for so long that it began to sound weird to you in your own head? Like if you think about a word, however ordinary, for a really long time and repeat it to yourself, the word itself will start to sound unfamiliar or foreign. That's actually a technique in Eastern mysticism, where you chant a word or phrase over and over again until your brain goes into a kind of screensaver mode where you just drift into an ethereal state, right? We are not called to sing in such a way that turns our minds off. This is important because if you look at verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Now, here, very briefly, 
and with every bit of humility I can muster, I'm about to pick a fight with some Bible translators, okay? So, this, in my opinion, is not the best handling of verse 7. My love for the ESV notwithstanding. The translators of the ESV have chosen to translate it a psalm. You can look in your footnote if you've got an ESV next to that word psalm. Actually, it's the word maskil, and we are not exactly sure what that means. Okay? What we are sure of is that it shares the same, he- uh, shares the same root in Hebrew for the word for wisdom or to make wise or to give understanding. And so most commentators think that a maskil was a particular kind of psalm. So that doesn't make it a bad translation, right? If, if a maskil is a type of psalm, then saying praise him with a psalm when the word is maskil, fine. But the King James translates it, sing praises with understanding. Right? Sing praises with understanding. Taking that meaning of the Hebrew word wisdom, understanding and then expressing that as sing this kind of psalm the kind that guides you into understanding you see we're not called to just sing until our brains turn off we're invited to sing with understanding that we might be provoked to reflection and wisdom right that's what the hebrew word there the root of that hebrew word means and so, so it's, not, you know, it's not chant a word until your brain turns into scrambled egg. We, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with understanding. Praising God with understanding is really important then. It's, <laughs> it's why we have bulletins. It's why there's a worship guide in front of you. It's why we've done Wednesday night classes just on worship and the worship service. It's why I am often talking on and on about the reasons for different aspects of our time together on Sunday morning. I want there to be understanding, not just rote repetition. Right? So that's verse 7. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather together as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God and He is highly exalted. What I want you to see, beginning in verse 8, God reigns over Israel. That's what it says, right? Is that what it says, beloved? No, no, that's right. It says God reigns over the nations. Interesting. God sits on His holy throne. The nations, all of the nations of the world have always been God's plan target, and objective. There is an idea that exists in many parts of evangelicalism, I think, that God set apart Israel because it was the only nation He cared about. And then the great thing about Jesus coming is that finally God has a care for the other nations. As though God was always and only about Israel. And then when Jesus comes and gives us the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, into all the nations. Oh, good, we finally get to care about the other nations now. No, not even a little bit. And with all respect, that sort of idea is only possible in places where people don't read their Old Testaments. And they don't sing their psalms. (laughs) For here, God calls out to all peoples. You remember verse 1? Yeah, you're supposed to link up verse 1 with 8 and 9. God calls out to all peoples in verse 1, and He rules over all nations, verse 8. Bringing in the nations, bringing them in, has always been God's plan. 
Israel then, so, so why Israel? What, you know, it, we've got a lot about the nation of Israel. In the Bible, Israel was the chosen nation that was meant to be the city on the hill to the other nations. Okay? After all, if you remember his, your history, God delivers His people out of Egypt, you know, in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they come into the promised land through many dangers, toils, and snares, and judges, and so on, and kings. Then, oh, you're right, so I'm ahead. The, the period of the judges, which is an absolute mess, and then they get a king for themselves by their own sinful demand. That king eventually falls and is succeeded by David, who is given glorious promises about his kingdom and throne. Then his son Solomon rules after David dies. And under Solomon, Israel reaches the high point of its spectacular glory. And then what happens? This woman shows up from a faraway land, the queen of Sheba. Do you remember? She hears rumors about the greatness of Jerusalem. And so in comes a Gentile ruler of a foreign nation to show honor and reverence before Yahweh's appointed king. Unfortunately, the kingdom takes a nosedive after Solomon from which it never fully recovers. But for one glorious moment, Israel was accomplishing her mission. To be the city on the hill that would bring the nations in, to worship the Lord of heaven and earth. That's always been the plan from the very beginning. And notice that the message given is not come nations if you feel like it or if this God appeals to your sense of goodness. This is a psalm of victorious triumph. The people of God are singing out, the king is conquered, he's Lord of the nations, therefore come and worship him. And so he's to be worshipped by all the nations. From, from You might say from the least to the greatest. So I, I, there's actually not a diminutive least in the psalm but verse one all peoples would include the least and the greatest and then you jump over to the end of the psalm verse nine verse nine where it talks about the princes right? the, the the greatest so verse nine the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the god of abraham just take a second with that the princes of the peoples, we know from verse 8 we're talking about the nations. They're being gathered in, and I'm going to say they're being baptized with a new name. You are now sons of Abraham. You're now part of this covenant. You're now brought in. You see how the promises are yes and amen in our Lord Jesus, who, who brings us in and says, you're now sons of Abraham. All these promises. It was a Rich Mullins song, right? Uh, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. That's just brilliantly poetic. So verse 9, the shields. talks about shields. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. What is that about? Well, if you think about a shield in the ancient world, it often bore some kind of image, did it not? Right? Like, a, like a family crest or the crest of a, a say, particular kingdom. It was a defensive weapon, obviously. It was also a kind of identity marker, right? So when I was, uh, and that, that's why, by the way, a lot of family crests look like shields, right? That's, that's the idea. When I was in uh, uh, Edinburgh, the, um, the, uh, the dining hall was filled with, I, I presume, maybe families that had, had contributed 
to the building of the, uh, of the Divinity School. And so it was all these, the family crests were all around the room, all these shields between, kind of just between the, the crown molding and the top of the, the wall, sort of. Uh, and, and, and so that's, it's, it, was, it was these identity markers with all the shields obviously facing outward for you to see. Something similar happened in the ancient world on the city walls, okay? Where, where shields could be placed along the city walls with the different crests of either families or even conquered kingdoms. Like this now belongs to us. And so when shields were put up on the city walls facing outwardly, they were proclaiming these houses and tribes and clans are part of this kingdom. And our victorious God says the princes and peoples of the earth will gather to the God of Abraham and they will bring their shields and hang them on my walls. Right? This should remind you of something. Revelation chapter 21. Jump over there, please. Verses 23 and 24. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In Psalm 2, the call goes out to the rulers, to the judges, to the kings. Kiss the son lest you perish in his wrath. And in Revelation 21, we see kings and rulers, if you like, with their crowns removed, bringing in to the new Jerusalem all their glory with them, meager and pitiful as it is compared to God Almighty. Now, I would offer to you, this is not how we tend to think of our faith in relation to what is going on in the world around us. We tend to think of rulers as those that give us people the right to exercise our religion alongside a bunch of other religions of roughly equal or greater value. In our modern post-enlightenment way of thinking, the city of man is the most fundamental authority, and the city of man invites in the city of God as long as we behave ourselves to worship as we will. In that way of thinking, the city of man invites in the city of God, and the city of man lets them worship until they become annoying or dangerous. What sort of people might we be had we been spending the last few years singing Psalm 47? How might we have been ready for the challenges that faced us in the last few years and the ones that are yet to come? Our God has called us to disciple the nations. He has not called the nations to pacify and domesticate the church. Rather, our Lord Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and has called us to do something with the nations, namely to baptize them, that they might come streaming into Zion and hang their shields on her wall. That is the plan. It has always been the plan. I told you we would go back to verse 5. Go back to verse 5 now. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This is the moment of victory, right? The, the, the big central, that's why it's in the middle of the psalm, central moment of victory. The psalmist is singing that God has come down to aid his people. He has fought valiantly, he has put victory in their hands, and has returned to his throne. Ascended up the stairs to once again sit 
down and reign. And throughout church history, this psalm has been seen as a prophetic looking forward to the ascension of Christ, who after the mighty victory of His resurrection, ascended up into heaven. The ascension preaches a reality I think we often overlook. That is, Christ is not not simply coming back to reign someday. He's not simply reigning in my heart today. He's reigning right now on His throne. He's bringing in the nations right now. He's putting enemies under His feet right now. How do I know that? Because He has ascended to His throne and kings who have taken their throne are not still waiting to rule. They are ruling. The trouble is our trouble. The trouble is that our trouble troubles us and causes us to think that maybe He's not totally in control. Maybe He's not totally ruling. We have instead been tempted to think that Satan is ruling and all we can really do is sort of take up a defensive posture and hope that Jesus comes back real soon to get us out of here before it gets really bad. But no, He's ruling. He's ruling. The fits and tantrums of rulers and empires will come and go. And this present American iteration seems to be in terrible decay, and it might be destined for a measure of downfall and decline. But you know what? I've only been gardening for about five seconds. But, but even, even a novice like me knows that decaying compost makes for the richest soil. So it may be that we and our nation and our historical moment are in a state of decay. That is what God uses to build rich soil. So our anthem, under the banner of our risen and ascended King, is not (laughs) dig a hole and bury yourself and hunker down and hope it all ends soon. Our banner is, if you're going to dig a hole, plant something. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Jesus Christ is the ascended Lord and King. Come and worship Him today. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 (laughs) Our Father, thank You for the good news of the victory that You've given us in Jesus Christ, our King who is ruling right now, ruling today. Our Lord, we ask that You would help us to... Oh, how to put it, to, to live into this joy, this confidence, not a, not a haughty confidence that is full of, of pompous arrogance, but a humble confidence that is the result of awe at the victory of our God. Give us the faith that people ought to have in a resurrected, ascended, ruling, and reigning king. And equip us, Lord, for this war, not with weapons of violence, but with love, with charity, with humility, with gratitude, gratitude, and with thanksgiving here at your table, in Jesus' name, amen.